I just had my computer worked on yesterday morning, so it's finally running and working right. And this morning I got up and turned on my computer so I could print off the notes, and it wouldn't turn on. So I called Dell, and uh, we worked on it for an hour, and it would not turn on. It still won't turn on. So I got to start over today and <laughs> go back and rewrite and restudy this. But you know what? Here's what's great about that. I was a little frustrated at first thinking, oh, I can't believe I, I lost an entire day. God showed me some things that I didn't see the first time. And a couple of things that are just like, wow. Like, so I'm blaming the Lord. I think he, uh, he messed with my computer, so I'd have to go back. Just Rick, slow down. I want you to see this. You got it done yesterday. Getting it done wasn't the point. So we're going to see some things, and I, I'm going to start right back in Joshua 18. Now, we went through the first ten verses, but that was a month ago. So let's jump back, beginning in verse 1, and uh, kind of pick up just back a bit from where we left off, and that way we can hit the ground running and get on into the rest of this. And there's some wonderful stuff. If I had a title for this tonight, I would call it Territories and Truths. <laughs> Because you're going to see over the next four chapters the rest of the tribes of Israel. There are seven tribes that don't have their territories yet. Five have their territories, seven not yet. They're still waffling, wandering, waiting. But along with these territories given to these tribes are some nuggets of truth, some really precious things that if we take the time to stop and look at them, we catch. And you'll see that tonight, and I'm excited about this, um, because there's some wonderful things in here. But let's begin. Verse 1, Joshua 18. And Lord, we, we do pray again for your presence and your spirit and your guidance, and we pray that you would teach, Lord. Father, if I were to pass out up here tonight, we know that you are sufficient and capable to pick up where I left off and, and uh, Father we, we hope and I, and I pray that it's always your word that's being taught and never relying on or reliant upon um, human ability and I pray Father tonight as we study we would only hear your words and anything that's extra superfluous anything that, that I throw in that, that's not of your spirit or of your word Father would you just let it fall away unheard and we pray, Spirit of Jesus, that as you spoke to the prophets of long ago, you would speak to us tonight and show us the wonder of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. The whole congregation then of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. There remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide for yourselves three men from each tribe, that I may send them, and that they may arise and walk through the land and write a description of it according to their inheritance, that they shall return, then they shall return to me. And they shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall stay, shall stay in its territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall stay in their territory on the north. And you shall divide, or describe, sorry, the land in seven divisions, and bring the description here to me. They were surveyors, a group of 21 guys to go out and survey the land. I will cast lots, verse 6, for you here before the Lord our God. For the Levites have no portion among you, because the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have also received their inheritance eastward beyond the Jordan, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. And then the men arose and went, and Joshua commanded those who went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it, and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed through the land and described it by cities in seven divisions in a book. And they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the sons of Israel according to their divisions. Learned something amazing when we were in Israel. Something about Shiloh. I'm going to pass this around and you can just kind of take a glance on it and pass it on around. I want it back. Okay? 
You can get your own copy. There's a little store in Israel. I'll point it out to you on the next trip when you all go, and, and you can pick this up if you'd like it. Shiloh is that central location where the tabernacle rested until ultimately it would rest in Jerusalem, in the temple. The tabernacle remained there through the time of the judges in Israel. So the next book following Joshua is Judges. And through that entire period of Israel's history, the tabernacle remained set up at Shiloh. The Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, there in Shiloh, it was the place where they kept it. It stayed that way until the time of the prophet Samuel, when it was apparently destroyed by the Philistines, and the Ark itself was captured and taken to their temple, to their god Dagon. That's a whole funny story in and of itself. We're coming into it about Dagon. They found him face down, their, their idol, the next morning after the ark was put in there. And then the next day they came in and he was face down and his hands were broken off. And it, it proves the point that, uh, that I like to say here to Dagon tomorrow. <laughs> Psalm 78, 58. Psalm 78, actually back in 54, says, He brought them into his holy land to this hill country which his right hand had gained. He also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and reacted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. They provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. Speaking about Israel. And when God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. Apparently, at that point, during the time of Samuel, that prophet who would anoint the first king Saul, during that time, the tabernacle itself was destroyed. It was wiped out and the ark taken into captivity. It would not be recovered for quite a while, but finally when it was brought to its resting place in Jerusalem by King David, it was settled and kept there for quite a while. But there's something else interesting to know and understand about Shiloh. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 12, the Lord says, Go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at first. The place of my name. That place in Shiloh where I set my name. Now, the word Lord in the Old Testament, as we read it, whenever you see Lord in that kind of half capitals, and you look at it and it's written a little bit differently, in most of your Old Testaments it's that way. Every time it says Lord, that is our rendering of YHWH in the Hebrew, the Tetragrammaton. It's where we get the name Yahweh or Jehovah. From that tetragrammaton, those, those four letters, Y-H-W-H. But in the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew name for the what we call the Old Testament, offensive to them because they don't think it's old, they think it's current and relevant. It's not because we have the New Testament that makes it, well, it is relevant because the New Testament makes it relevant and Jesus brings it into the current day. But to the Jewish people, they call it the Tanakh and they don't even write Lord. In fact, you may know this, but most Jewish people, when they refer to God, when they're writing, will write G-D. They won't even write the O. It's out of respect for the name. And that's what they write in the Tanakh. Every time you see Lord in your Old Testament, in the Jewish Old Testament, the Jewish Tanakh, it's written the name. In Hebrew, Hashem. Hashem. Give that to you, Pat. And you can take a look at this. What's fascinating, I'm passing around a satellite photo of the valleys between Shiloh and Hebron. It's, it's circled there or has a little rectangle around it. You see the valleys, and you'll see this as it comes around. There are several valleys there in between Shiloh and Hebron. If you look closely enough and you are able to compare it to the Hebrew word Hashem, you would see it right there in the valleys. The place where God said, I put my name. Now I'll pass that around and you can check it out and it's pretty amazing. That God literally said his name in the crevices, in the valleys of the earth between Shiloh and Hebron, as he told Jeremiah, go to Shiloh where I set my name at first. The place where the Lord set his name. And I tell you that because not only is it a, a geographic point of interest, but I want you in, to understand tonight something that hit me big time. And I, I, this thought just kind of keeps coming back. You are the place that he has set his name. You are current Shiloh. See, we wear the name Christian. And we're told in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The word Christian meaning little Christ. You wear the name. 
He has set His name in you and upon you. All the way back in Genesis chapter 4 verse 26 it says, To Seth, to him also a son was born and he called him Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And some translations actually think it's possible, it's not that they called upon the name of the Lord, but they were called by the name of the Lord. All the way back to the day of Seth, men began to be called by the name. That they were under the, the name of God as followers, as believers in God, in the same way that you and I are called by the name Christians. We bear the name of Jesus. And just as he did at Shiloh, at first, so he has done in you and in me through Jesus Christ. That we bear the name, the place that he has set his name. Now, here at Shiloh, Joshua said to the remaining tribes of Israel, those who had yet to claim their inheritance, he said, go get it. Go get your inheritance. We begin here in the place of the name. Now go get it. Same thing to you and I as Christians. And you bear the name. Go get your possession. Take hold of what God's promised you. Don't sit back and wait for it. Enter into his rest. Come to me, he says. Come to me. Take hold of what he's promised you. Seven tribes of Israel had yet to do that. Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, or Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. Him hawing around, hands in their pockets, waiting, not moving, wandering, and not taking possession. And so Joshua asked, how long are you going to put it off? How long are you going to wait to take possession of what God has planned for you, what He has promised for you? And the great application for us today is go get it. Your possession, your portion is just waiting for you. Verse 11, Now the lot of the tribe of the sons of Benjamin came up according to their families. And the territory of their lot lay between the sons of Judah and the sons of Joseph. This is the territory of Benjamin. Verse 12, their border on the north side was from the Jordan, and the border went up to the side of Jericho on the north, and went up through the hill country westward. And it ended in the wilderness, or at the wilderness, of beth From there the border continued to Luz, to the side of Luz, that is Bethel southward. And the border went down to Adaroth-Adar, near the hill which lies on the south of lower beth Now instead of reading all this, you can just look at a biblical map and see exactly where Benjamin is. But it goes all the way down through verse 28 describing the land that belongs to Benjamin. But let me point something out about Benjamin. Bible students, put your thinking caps on and consider this for a moment. What is it that Judah, the tribe of Judah, and Ephraim will eventually represent for Israel? What does Judah represent and what does Ephraim represent? That's it. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So who's the northern kingdom? Ephraim. Ephraim. Southern kingdom is Judah. So say this with me. The southern kingdom is? Judah. Judah. Good. And the northern kingdom is called? Ephraim. Ephraim. Judah and Ephraim. Now even though the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, when the the division, the split comes, those ten tribes are called the kingdom of Israel. They're also called Ephraim because as we talked about, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before in Ezekiel 37, Ephraim was the largest of the tribes in the north, and often the northern kingdom which is called or referred to as Ephraim. The southern kingdom, because the largest tribe there was Judah, and it was the ruling tribe, out of Judah would come the kings, ultimately Jesus, came from the tribe of Judah as the greatest of all rulers, as our king. But Judah would be what the southern kingdom was called or referred to. Now, these two rival tribes... In this split, Ephraim to the north, Judah to the south, ultimately would need a buffer, and they ended up getting a buffer, and that buffer is Benjamin. Benjamin's the buffer. Now we read this, Ezekiel 37:19. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my mind. I had a, a, an ex-Mormon friend of mine, who's a Christian now, who the Mormon church is going back after him again, talk about this. He said, I'm very confused, because the Mormon church claims to be the tribe of Ephraim. And they're put together with a stick of Judah. And so they really are the new, the new Israel. And there's a lot of heresy that falls out of Ezekiel 37 being misunderstood. We talked about this a week and a half ago. E- Ezekiel 37 very clearly is talking about Israel. 
Israel. And as a matter of fact, you would be hard-pressed to find anywhere in the Bible, anywhere, not a single verse, that indicates the church has replaced or become Israel. It hasn't. Two separate things. So you have Ephraim and you have Judah, but in between is little Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. They are the buffer zone. They held the smallest territory, buffering huge Ephraim above them and massive Judah below them. Little Ephraim or little Benjamin was there in the middle, the smallest territory. You ever feel like that? Like you are the small territory in between the two big kingdoms that are fighting? You ever been in the middle? You may feel like your strength is little in comparison to others around you who are duking it out. Or even others that seem to have greater faith or greater command like Judah of their lives. But listen, the Lord has likely placed you where He has put you to be that buffer. To bring peace where there may not be peace, just like Benjamin. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Now Benjamin was small, but his borders were great, for within his borders was the great city, ultimately, Jerusalem. Jerusalem finds its home in Benjamin. Benjamin surrounds Jerusalem. Ephraim and Judah were rivals. Benjamin was in the middle with Jerusalem in his territory. And Jerusalem means the city of peace. Shalom. As we saw on Sunday, while the people are crying peace and safety, anything but peace and safety is en route. War and disaster and tribulation is on the horizon for Jerusalem. Peace and safety is not yet, but gang, Jerusalem on a day not far from now will be the, sh- the city of Shalom. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Which is wonderful, Gary, because if he's saying, Come to me, guess what? He is also going to bring you to him. Faithful is he who calls you. Come to me. He also is the one who brings it to pass. Come to me. And he brings us to him. We don't even have to have the energy to come. It's absolutely amazing. Now hold on to that thought as we study on tonight. So that brings us to the end of chapter 18. Didn't I tell you this would be quick? Verse 1 of chapter 19. The territory now of Simeon. Benjamin has their territory. Now we look at Simeon. The second lot fell to Simeon, to the tribe of the sons of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Judah. Verses 2 on through 9 tells about that specifically. Details, outlines, gives the parameters of Simeon's territory. But verse 9, watch this, says, The inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah, for the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them. So the sons of Simeon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance. And that's a magnanimous statement. It's a kind way of referring to what actually is going on here. This property that Simeon received was right there in the midst of Judah. Judah was vast. It was a big property. And so Simeon got a piece right in the middle and was surrounded on all sides by that prominent, powerful, ruling tribe of Judah. And gang, listen to this. As we trace down through the scriptures, as we study on, try and keep an eye out and see what Simeon does because it's not much. So there are occasional references. But from here on out, Simeon pretty much just kind of dissolves into Judah. You'll rarely see Simeon doing anything as a tribe that Judah's not already doing. They go along with Judah on some campaigns that we'll study and read about. But beyond that, they simply kind of lose their identity in the larger tribe of Judah and disappear into the land. I tell you that because there's prophetic significance here. That old coot, Jacob, also called what? Israel. On his deathbed, he is speaking blessing to his 12 sons. Back in Genesis 49. And as he blesses his sons, there is prophetic speaking over them in the blessing. It's, it's probably one of the most powerful prophetic passages in all of the Bible. Genesis 49. 
And this is what he says about Simeon, verse 5 of Genesis 49. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will... They lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Listen to what he says. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Their inheritance, their allotment, they would not receive like the other tribes. They would literally be scattered and dispersed, dissolving, melding into the larger tribe of Judah and on into Israel. And what Jacob pronounced on his deathbed is absolutely what happens to Simeon. With precision and clarity, this old Israel explains and shares what would happen hundreds of years later. Why did it happen? You can think all the way back to Genesis 34. We've looked at this before, talked about it a couple of times. The people, the the sons of Israel and their father are living in the land, living near Hebron. And as they're living there, there's a city nearby, the city of Shechem. And Jacob not only had sons, he also had daughters, one of whom was Dinah. And Dinah's out in the field, and Shechem, not the city but the man, the son of the guy who founded the city, Shechem finds her in the field and finds her attractive, and he rapes her. And then he falls in love with her after having raped her. It's not really a good way to start a relationship. He falls in love with her, and then he goes boldly to Simeon and Levi and the sons of Israel, and he asks for Dinah's hand in marriage. Well, Jacob doesn't do anything about this rape, and the sons are incensed. They're furious. So Simeon and Levi put their heads together and say, we got a plan. They go to Shechem and they say, all right, we'll make a deal with you. You can marry our sister Dinah. And as a matter of fact, the people, the men of your town can marry in with our, with our family, with our sisters and our daughters, and that'll be fine. But you have to be circumcised first. They take the covenant of circumcision and they use it as a weapon. And all the men of Shechem get circumcised, and the day after their circumcision, while they're still in pain and unable to move around a lot, full-grown men circumcised, don't need to say anything more about that, Simeon and Levi go in and they slaughter the entire town. And Jacob says, what have you done? You've made me a stink in this area. You've made me an odor, a bad smell here. And so when it came time later for him to give a blessing for his sons, he says, Simeon and Levi, you blew it. Because of your murderous intentions, because of what you did, you will not receive a portion when you eventually come back into the land. It's amazing because Genesis 48 and 49 are like a road map detailing exactly what would happen to Israel. You go back and you can use that. You can go to each one of the sons, read the blessing, and look at the tribe. And it's amazing how what Israel said played out in their lives. It's unlike MapQuest. I don't know if you've ever used MapQuest, but I found that I use MapQuest and it's incredibly confusing. You use MapQuest, I'm warning you, you're going to end up in the boonies somewhere, you know, with a, with a literal fork in the road. I mean, that's what map. It's not like that. These directions are not confusing on Jacob's roadmap. They are divinely precise. Well, going on in verse 10. So that's the territory of Simeon in the middle of Judah, and they just kind of dissolve into Judah. Now the territory of Zebulun. Verse 10, the third lot came up for the sons of Zebulun according to their families. Now understand what they're doing. They're praying over this. They're casting lots, and they're asking the Lord to decide and determine where each each tribe goes. And that's what's happening. So this truly is the determination of the Lord where they end up. Zebulun, according to their families, the territory of their inheritance was as far as Sarid. And the border went up to the west and to Merala, and then touched Dabasheth and reached to the brook that is before Jochneum, and on down through verse 16 gives the territory of Zebulun. This territory runs north of the Kishon River, and it's in in between the Sea of Galilee on the east, so this is up in the Galilee region, Sea of Galilee on the east and the Mediterranean Sea on the west. By the way, the Sea of Galilee, it's not really a sea, is it? It's a lake. It's not salty, it's fresh water. It is a freshwater lake in Israel. It's the most important body of water in all of Israel because it, it supplies the fresh water for all of the Israelis even today. This freshwater lake in the Bible Old Testament is Chinneroth, and you'll see that, Chinneroth or Chinnereth. Today they call it Lake Kinneret in the Hebrew. We call it the Sea of Galilee because we're just so used to calling it that. And you might take note of this. In fact, there's a t-shirt you can buy if you go to Israel. 
It says Israel has three seas. Remember this one? Three seas of Israel. Red Sea, Med Sea, and Dead Sea. And that's how you remember. Red Sea down to the south, Elot is the, the southernmost town in Israel and it touches on the Red Sea. Then you've got the Dead Sea a little bit further up, that salt sea that we floated in, and there are pictures of Joe you have got to see. Floating in, you know, it's great. There are pictures of me, but you don't need to see those. <laughs> the Red Sea, Dead Sea, and the Med Sea. Okay, those are the three seas, and it's easy to remember if you look at it that way, just using that rhyme. But Zebulun received territory just as their father Jacob had described. Genesis 49.13 Zebulun will dwell at the seashore. He shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Now, if you look at Zebulun, it looks like they're not quite out to the seashore. But they have pathways to the sea, and the river Kishon runs below Zebulun and right out to the Mediterranean, so they were a people who had ships. Just as, again, that old Jacob said they would have. His precision is amazing. Now we pick up verse 17, the territory of Issachar. The fourth lot fell to Issachar, to the sons of Issachar, according to their families. Their territory was to Jezreel. Let me just stop right there. What is Jezreel? Anybody remember? What is Jezreel? Where is Jezreel? It's known by another name. Megiddo. That's it. The Valley of Jezreel. The Jezreel Valley is the Valley of Megiddo. It is that vast valley. Way to go, Aaron. That vast valley in northern Israel. And it is absolutely breathtaking to look out over it. It's, it's absolutely huge. And geographically, Issachar, Issachar received land in that huge valley, the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Megiddo. It's also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat in the book of Joel, that place of decision, God's judgment. It's a place of massive battles, both past and future, and that's the territory of Issachar, right there, the Jezreel Valley. Now, the territory of Asher, verse 24. The fifth lot fell to the tribe of the sons of Asher according to their families. Their territory was Helkath and Halion and Paten and Akshath. And on and on it goes down through verse 31. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the sons of Asher. According to their families, these cities with their villages. What great things do you remember the tribe of Asher doing in the Bible? You don't. Because they didn't do anything great. In fact, from here on out, you're going to hear about Asher only in the numbering, in the census, or where the 12 tribes are mentioned. That's when you hear about Asher. Other than that, Asher's the sun somewhere in the middle. Asher is the tribe that is completely unnoticeable, but for one small person. Turning your Bibles over to Luke chapter 2. Book of Luke, chapter 2 in the New Testament. I'm going to begin reading at verse 21. Luke 2, 21. It says, When eight days had passed before Jesus' circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, verse 24, according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. By the way, the reason why they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons was because Joseph and Mary were very poor. Very poor. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Now that consolation, not like a consolation prize. It's not like, oh, you didn't win first place, so you get the consolation prize. This is the, the compassion of Israel. This is the salvation, the helping of Israel. In fact, literally the word consolation there in the Greek, you might be familiar with this, it's paraklesis. It's the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit by Jesus, the paraclete. He who comes alongside. So the consolation of Israel, he was looking for him, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, upon this man Simeon. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christos, Mashiach, Messiah, Savior. 
And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. Now, now this is not even a priest. I love this. Simeon is not a priest. I went back and looked at this. I, somehow I got it in my mind that Simeon was always at the temple. And when they brought Jesus in, there was kind of a hubbub. And so he thought, oh, this must be him. No, the Holy Spirit led this guy, Simeon, into the temple on the precise day that Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit whispered, intended, told Simeon, you're going to see the Lord's Messiah today. And when he saw the infant Jesus, it tells us he took him into his arms. This must have just freaked out his parents. And he starts blessing God. He says, now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Interesting. This Jewish man would say that in the Jewish temple. And the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. This is little baby Jesus that hadn't done anything but cry and poop and eat. Okay? At this point. Now for some that might be offensive. Jesus, baby Jesus, crying and pooping. How can you say that? Because he was fully human. I hope that he could do all three of those things. I'm going to move on before I get offensive. And verse 34 says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now watch this. There was a prophetess, Anna. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. There's Asher's place right here. She was advanced in years and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. So the vast portion of her life was as a widow. Seven short years of marriage. But she found the right place to be. It says, verse 37, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She saw Messiah. She saw Christ and was so impressed she knew this was Jesus. She knew Jesus was Messiah. And so even after they left the temple from that day forward in Anna's life, she was an evangelist. She was preaching Jesus. I saw the baby. The Messiah is here. Messiah has come. And this becomes Anna's identity for you and for me even today. Over 2,000 years, the church would always look at this woman, Anna, as the one who recognized Jesus. Now I point her out not just because it's you know interesting that she happens to be of the tribe of Asher. And by the way, for those who would say that the, the ten northern tribes were completely dispersed and lost... Well, here is Anna of the tribe of Asher living in Jerusalem, not lost, not dispersed. In fact, when the Assyrians came down and they wiped out northern Israel, a lot of the Jewish people up there fled south. And so all of the tribes of Israel could still be accounted for, though people like to try and say the ten lost tribes. Well, Asher obviously wasn't lost. Anna was here in the temple at this time. But again, I point out Anna for this reason. If not for Jesus, we would never have heard of her. If not for Jesus, Asher's existence would be pretty nondescript. But because Jesus came into the temple that day, Anna suddenly becomes significant to us. Oh, Anna, along with Simon, or Simeon, these two, Anna and Simeon, recognize the Messiah. And we become impressed with and, and aware of this woman, Anna. And many people, if you've read the Bible, you, you remember this name, Anna. That's where it comes from. She's in the picture because she was on the lookout for Jesus and she recognized him even as a baby. And I say that to say this. Our significance and our relevance in this world, our lives, if they're going to be of any consequence, are so because of Jesus. Because we recognize Jesus. That's where our significance comes from. Our meaning, our purpose. People talking a lot today about purpose. What's my purpose? Your purpose is to recognize and talk about Jesus Christ. And that's why we know Anna. And that's why the tribe of Asher is significant. Because all the way down, Anna was the one who recognizes Jesus. I love that both Simeon and Anna, Anna, both a man and a woman, 
great representation there of people keeping their eyes out for Jesus. And I encourage you to keep your eyes out for Jesus as well. Verse 32. Now on to the territory of Naphtali. The sixth lot fell to the sons of Naphtali and the son, to the sons of Naphtali according to their families. And it goes on to give the region of Naphtali. You'll notice in verse 35, Chinereth, that's, that's the Sea of Galilee. Lake Kinneret, Lake Chinereth. Okay, and on down through verse 39 talks about Naphtali. Now, I want to point something out here. The regions of Zebulun or Zebulun and Naphtali together make up what's called Galilee of the Gentiles. When you go to Israel, as I'm planning for all of you to go, you're going to get tired of me saying that, but when you go there, you will go to the region of the, of the Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way, it works for me to keep saying when you go to Israel because it worked on Joe and Karen they had no intention of going whatsoever but they kept hearing it over and over and eventually they just had to go so I'm hoping the same for all of you as well when you go and see the Galilee of the Gentiles what you're looking at is the region of Zebulun and Naphtali those two tribes make up that entire region and I want you to understand something here as they settled there by the Sea of Galilee in the north these two tribes were always bullied and beaten up and bedraggled they had a hard go of it and the reason is because they were in the north and invading armies tended to come from the north and they didn't come around the other side for the mountains of Israel and the river Jordan and the Sea of Galilee itself were a buffer zone so they would come on the inside on the Mediterranean side and Naphtali and, and Zebulun would get waylaid constantly they were always at war always trying to protect their territory beaten up it was a dark difficult busted up region and Jesus chose that area in, in Israel to base his ministry which is so cool he didn't show up to be born in and live in Jerusalem and, and move in the, air, the territories right around you know, Jerusalem to Hebron to Shiloh and back and forth no it was Galilee of the Gentiles the Gentiles now he himself said I was sent to seek out the lost sheep of the house of Israel but he did it in the darkest region in the land the most difficult place Jesus based his, the vast majority of his life and his ministry there Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 says when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. Quote, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them the light has dawned. You understand the significance of Isaiah's prophecy when you realize that the very region he's talking about was dark. It was a shadow land. It was a difficult place to live. And that's where Jesus chose to have his ministry. And that's the way of the Lord. He settles in the difficult places. In the tough spots. In the region of the helpless. Jesus ministers in the place of the forlorn. He shines in the darkness. You don't find Jesus in the high cathedrals. Where the lights are great and the sound system is fantastic. And everything's clean and slick and put together. That's not where Jesus goes. He goes to the darkness. To the hurting. He goes to the valleys. And he goes to the places in the middle of nowhere. And he does the same in our lives. He goes to the dark places. Not to those places where we think we have it all together, where we're shining and happy and smiling and everything's good. He goes to the hurt. And the hurt's a hard place. I think what's difficult about coming to the Lord is the hurt is where we have the toughest time just letting Him take control. But that's where Jesus intends to be. And if you're in the place of difficulty or darkness, good news, it's where He does His best ministry. Mark chapter 2 verse 16 says when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors they said to his disciples why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and hearing this Jesus said to them it's not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick I did not come to call the righteous but the sinners verse 40 going on now the territory of Dan says the seventh lot fell to the tribe of the sons of Dan according to their families the territory of their inheritance was Zorah and Eshtael and Irshemesh 
and Shealabim, and Iajalon, and Ifla, and Elon, and Timnah, and Ekron, and Eltika, and Gibbethon, and Baalath, and I'm sure they could say it better than me, and Jehud, and Bini Barak, and Gatrimon, and Mejarkin, and Rakon, and I can say this, the territory over against Joppa. Or Jaffa. Jaffa, Jaffa, it's the same place. I mentioned that because Dan's original territory was on the Mediterranean Sea coast in a beautiful location. You would know it as Tel Aviv today. Tel Aviv was originally the territory of Dan. Now when you go to Israel, you're going you're to stay in the Dan Panorama Hotel when you first arrive there in Tel Aviv. And you can walk right out the front door of the Dan Panorama, across the street, be careful, they're nuts over there the way they drive, and over to the beach and you're on the Mediterranean. And from there you can look straight down the seacoast and it curves around and you see this really cool looking town, city, and that's Jaffa. It's about a five minute, ten minute walk down the coast. You can get to Joppa and walk through the streets of Joppa. Interesting town, that's where Jonah ran to catch a ship to go in the opposite direction of where God called him to go when he said go to Nineveh. That was right out of Joppa. Joppa also is the place of a, of a guy, the home of a guy named Simon the Tanner. You can see Simon the Tanner's house. It's still there today. Simon the Tanner. It was on Simon the Tanner's rooftop that Peter was praying and received a vision where God said, go and take the gospel literally to the Gentiles on Simon the Tanner's house. It's really cool. You just, that's it. There's a little sign on the door. Simon the Tanner's house. There's not like big flashing lights. It's not a big touristy spot. Just Simon the Tanner's house. There in Jaffa. Jaffa is also the location where the Jewish Palmach these guys were blockade runners just after World War II. And i got to recommend to you a book. I've been telling everybody to read. Pick up this book. Read it. It's enjoyable. It's a good read. But it's amazing, the history of what happened. The more modern history of Israel. The book is called Exodus by Leon Uris. Exodus is one of the best books I've ever read. And it really brings together a lot of this recent history. Going back to the late 1800s and then all the way through World War II and into the creation of the State of Israel. It's an amazing, amazing book. But one of the things that happened, and we don't realize this. We think, okay, when the Holocaust was over, that's when Israel became a nation. And they just flooded into the land and it was all good. No, it wasn't. The British, right before the war broke out in 1939, they signed a piece of paper called the White Paper. And the White Paper effectively shut down any kind of migration or immigration into Palestine. What that did was it made all of the German Jews who were trying to get out because they saw what was coming, they were not allowed to leave. As a matter of fact, my friends, with the exception of, I believe, Holland, no nation on earth allowed the Jews to come in. Everybody shut their borders. No, you may not migrate to our country. And especially Israel. And it was all because of this silly white paper. And so what the Jewish people did, they were getting out as many people as they could get out. And they were bringing them in ships. And the British literally had a blockade along the Mediterranean Sea to keep ships from getting to shore with Jewish people aboard. And so at night, these blockade runners, called the Palmach, these Jewish uh, military, they're kind of an underground military, would sail these ships and they'd have anywhere from 10, 20, maybe 100 people aboard and they literally would beach these things there on the seacoast between Tel Aviv and Jaffa and all the way up to Caesarea. They'd beach the ships and get the people off as quickly as possible. They'd give them uh, fake visas and get them into the kibbutzes before the British could do anything about it just to try and save their people. Anyway, get Exodus. It's an amazing, amazing book. But that all happened in that area of Joppa, which is an artsy location today, and that was the place of Dan. I'll give you all that background information to say it's interesting when you stand on the shore of the Mediterranean, you look at Joppa, you think, man, what a cool place to live. I could live in Joppa. It's beautiful. The Mediterranean there is is green and, and, and blue in colors that we don't normally see up here in the Northwest. And... Dan didn't want it. The people of Dan decided it's alright, but we don't want a more tropical place. We want something more northwesty. We want something with some trees and some rivers. And so they head north to northern Israel. We talked about this recently. Dan was discontent. And the region they were given by the Lord was too hard to hold. It was a tough area to battle off the imposing armies and the Philistines coming right up the coast against them. It was difficult. So they said, we've had enough of the hardships. So we're getting out. 
We're going to go up north where it's easier. Where the trees grow tall and the, and the rivers run and we can rest on the hills and just take it easy. And so Dan moved up, but they were taken down. They were the first tribe of Israel to fall to idolatry. Jeroboam would set up a golden calf in the city that you can even see the remains of the ruins of today. Tell Dan. But what did the Lord tell Dan? He said, stay put there by the Mediterranean. Stay put down there by Joppa. Tell him that area, that's yours. It's a good area. Yes, it's tough. You're going to have to fight to hold it. But that's where I want you to be. Dan said, no, 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 no. That's, that's too hard. I'm going somewhere else. And gang, by looking for something far easier, they wound up with something far worse. And they would be the first ones taken into Assyrian captivity. They left because it got tough. But James tells us in James 1 verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, when you are having a hard time and you're battling it out for the Lord and it's spiritually tough, praise God. Consider it joy. Why? Because you're toughening it up. You're getting prepared. The Lord is working on you and doing good things in you. Now we've covered and seen the territory for all 12 of the tribes of the sons of Israel, but there's one person left, and he's the last person to get his allotment of land, the territory of Joshua. Look at verse 49. It says, When they finished apportioning the land for the inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in the midst, in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. In accordance, actually, let's, I need to say this correctly. I was corrected on the Israel trip. It's Nun. He's the son of Nun. He's not the son of Nun, so it turns out he's not Catholic. He's the son of Nun. Okay? And that's the way you say that. So from here on out, when I say Joshua, son of Nun, please correct me. It's Joshua, son of Nun. Verse 50. In accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnah Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And so he built a city and settled in it. And these are the inheritances which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel distributed by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And so they, they finished dividing the land. i got to point out something here about Joshua. He is so much like Jesus. He is such a great picture. This Yeshua, a picture of our Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ, in that just like our Joshua, the last one, the last one to get his inheritance is Joshua. He puts everybody else before him. All of the tribes receive their inheritance. Joshua waits until the last of the last of the last tribes gets their land, and then he says, okay, I'm ready for mine. But there's something else interesting about Joshua's approach. He chose, like his buddy Caleb, a tough area. The hill country of Ephraim. An area that would not go without a fight. Just like Caleb. So you got these two old boys, Joshua and Caleb by this time, in their older age. They fought the major battles. And they choose these two locations, Hebron and the hill country of Ephraim, because they still have some fight in them. Good old mad dog Caleb and Joshua are still fighting it out. And there's a great truth here. There's a great truth. The name Timnath Sarah... The location where Joshua settled, Timnath Sarah, means abundant portion. So Joshua got this abundant portion. It was a tough place. Unlike Dan, however, who fled their tough place, though it was beautiful and a good piece of land, Joshua stayed and fought for and stuck to his land and received his Timnath Sarah. He received the abundant portion. And the truth is simply this. The abundant portion is always received through the strife and the difficulty and the hard times. Not through striving, don't get me wrong, but through strife, through toughness. Sometimes the Lord puts us exactly in the place where we have to fight for it because it's worth having. And that's where the abundant portion is. Do you want the abundant life? How many of you here, let me just do a show of hands, would like to have an abundant life? Okay, even as tired as you are right now, you rush you still as sleepy as you are, you want the abundant good. We all want the abundant life. Here's the key to the abundant life. Walk in and with the Spirit of Jesus and accept a persecution like his. And you will have the abundant life. You take the knocks and the hardship, and you will have the abundant life. Let me read this to you quickly. Philippians chapter three in verse seven says the following. 
Paul writes, we've read this before, it's a great one to memorize. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And he says this, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead Paul got it you want the abundant portion the tenuth Sarah for your life you want the abundance then accept the persecution that comes right along with it the tough stuff of life and you'll receive that abundant portion in the meantime chapter 20 verse 1 Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19. That the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood, the word there is ga'al, it's both avenger, it's also translated in the book of Ruth, redeemer, kinsman redeemer. If the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city and to his own house to the city from which he fled. Now we studied about this before a couple of times. The cities of refuge, six of them set up in Israel, three on the west side, three on the east side of the Jordan. And these cities were places, they were Levitical cities, where someone could run if you had had an accident that ended up or resulted in someone being killed. You're swinging an axe, and the axe head falls off, the axe flies through the air, hits somebody on the head, and kills them. It's completely unintentional. But in those days, justice was brought through the families, and the next of kin of the person who was killed could go after the person who killed them, and life for life could kill that person. That was the way so many of the ancient cultures functioned. And so the Lord set up something. He said, when that happens, if that happens tragically, and you're the person who caused the murder, and it was unintentional and not premeditated, then you run. And you go to one of these six cities of refuge, and you present yourself to the elders, and you are protected from the blood of injury. You can't go outside of the city, but you're safe to stay there until you're judged and, and, and found to be either guilty or innocent. And if innocent, you still had to stay there to receive your protection from the blood avenger cities of refuge we did a lot of studying on that before and they're they're teaching their tapes available if you want to look into that more but here's the thing I didn't see yesterday that I got to see today because I lost the notes to the computer check this out the meaning of these six cities the names is striking let me tell you what they mean in verse 7 it says they set apart Kadesh and the Galilee and the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. So those are on the west side of the Jordan. Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. Verse 8, beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they designated Betzer, in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh, which is the Golan region of the Golan Heights today. So Betzer, Ramoth, and Golan are on the east side of the Jordan. Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron on the west side of the Jordan. And verse 9 says these were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and the strangers who sojourns among them that whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation. Now here's the thing. We are all guilty. We're guilty of sins in our life that we don't premeditate. We don't mean to sin, we just do. There are things every single one of us have done wrong to be punishable by death, for the wages of sin is death. 
And so as much as we may try to be righteous and may avoid actual overt acts of sin, there are still things in our lives that we do that make us somewhat like the person running to the city of refuge. And we've talked about before, Jesus is our refuge. But listen to what these cities mean. Kadesh. Kadesh means holy place. It's the same word. It comes from the word kadosh. Kadesh, the holy place. Shechem means shoulders. Shechem means shoulders. It's called that because Shechem is on a ridge that looks like a large shoulder. Okay, so Shechem means shoulders. Hebron, Hebron means fellowship. And I, I did share this with the guys last night. It's not only fellowship, it also means to bind, or it could mean to bind with stripes or marks. Hebron. Betzer means an inaccessible stronghold or fortress. Ramoth means the heights. The heights. As in the Golan Heights. Ramoth is the heights. And then Golan itself is their captive or their rejoicing. So what? Put it all together. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. He left the holy place. He took our sin on his shoulders. He binds us to him in fellowship that he might take us up to an otherwise inaccessible stronghold in the heights leading the captive to their rejoicing. It's a picture of salvation. The names of these cities pointing to the salvation of Jesus Christ. And I love this. I was thinking about it today. Leading the captive in their rejoicing. Golan, the captive, or those who are rejoicing in their captivity. Who would rejoice in their captivity? (laughs) Those who have been captivated by Jesus. And he says, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul explains something in this interesting verse. He says, now the expression, he ascended. What does it mean? Except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Jesus came down. Not only did he come down to the earth, but when he died, he went further down into the depths, where he released the souls of those who were captive until his act of redemption on Calvary. He effectively shut down the paradise side of Hades, those who were waiting all this time until Jesus' crucifixion so that they could receive their redemption. In fact, remember, Abraham was given righteousness as a credit. The Lord said, I'm going to credit you with righteousness because of your faith. You're not righteous, Abraham, but I'm going to give you, as it were, a credit. I'm going to give you a token of righteousness. You hold on to that, Abraham, because you're going to get to cash that in one day. When? When Jesus paid for the righteousness on the cross. And once that payment was made, Abraham and all who had faith in God before Jesus could cash in that token. So Jesus comes down to the earth. He dies. He goes to the depths. He effectively leads captivity captive. The captive ones that Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. He leads the captives to their place of rejoicing, which is what the word Golan means. It's fantastic. The cities of refuge themselves foreshadow Jesus, who is our refuge. And though he came down and died and went down and released the captive ones, he does the same for us. He has come down to release us from our captivity, again, that we might be captivated by Jesus. I got the chance this afternoon. Uh, Hayden had a, had a field trip after school to go see Amazing Grace. And if you haven't seen that movie, go see it. Great movie about William Wilberforce and shutting down the slave trade, and, and I won't tell you any more, but it's also about John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And he's one of the characters in the movie, played by Albert Finney. does an awesome job. There's a, a point in the movie where Albert Finney, who plays Newton, and Newton was a slave trader, who went around saying that he had the ghosts of 20,000 souls on his mind. 20,000 that he had led by captaining a ship 20,000 slaves was his guilt this was the man who wrote Amazing Grace this man understood grace Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see and what's interesting is John Newton went blind in the end of his life but it was the end of his life that he understood grace 
when he had vision, he couldn't see a thing as a slave trader, as a captain of a ship. But when he went blind, he had grace and he could see the love of the Lord. And he wrote that song about it. But there's a line in the movie that's wonderful. Newton says, I am a great sailor. Christ is a great savior. I got chills. You know, I'm sitting there. I'm with Hayden's fourth grade class, and you can't cry in front of the fourth graders. It's not pretty. The city of refuge, gang, they foreshadowed Jesus, who is our great Savior. All right, Joshua 21. Let's finish this up. One more chapter to go. How you doing? This is very quick. Verse 1. Then the heads of the households of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribe of the sons of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities with their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. And verses 4 all the way down through 42 give you those cities. Verse 41 says, All the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the sons of Israel were 48 cities with their pasture lands. And these cities each had its surrounding pasture land. Thus it was with all these cities. Chapter 21 describes by name the 48 cities of the Levites. Six of those cities are the cities of refuge we just talked about. And once again, Jacob's wonderful prophecy in Genesis 49 that we talked about before, it comes true. We see it happen for Levi. Because Levi, along with his brother Simeon, received no inheritance of his own. He's scattered throughout the land. He's given 48 cities, but he's not given any land in particular that is his own. The Levites is the priest. They don't get that inheritance. But check it out. Unlike Simeon, the Levites did get an inheritance. In fact, to my mind, they got the greatest inheritance of any of the sons of Israel. For the Levites were the priests. And the Lord put it this way. Numbers 18, verse 20, The Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion. And I am your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Why? Why does Levi get this? Simeon, they dissolve, they disappear into Israel. Levi... Levi's portion is the Lord. They get to be the priests. And in Levi, the sons of Aaron, they get to be the the high priestly family. What's the deal? How come Levi? You know why. You remember back. It was the golden calf. And Levi stood when no one else, Simeon didn't stand up. When the Lord told Moses to go down and Moses saw the partying in the camp and saw the golden calf, he said, Who stands with the Lord? It was the tribe of Levi that rushed up to Moses and stood with the Lord. It was the tribe of Levi that unsheathed their sword and loved the Lord more than their neighbors and their kinsmen and by the command of the Lord took their sword and went into the camp slaying all of those who would worship the golden calf rather than the Lord. It was Levi. And so the Lord, because of Levi's courage and their faithfulness and their love of him over all others, he reversed the curse. He turns it around. And though Levi still doesn't get an inheritance of land, they get a greater inheritance by far. They get the inheritance of the Lord. The Levite's portion is the Lord. And there is more than enough of the Lord to go around. That's the great thing about Jesus. He's never, there's no limitation with him. In fact, let me tell you this quickly. There were two miraculous miracles, two miraculous miracles, that makes sense, two miracles of feeding that we read about in the New Testament. Do you remember? The loaves and the fishes? They're two different stories. And they're not just misquotes of each other. They're not contradictions. They're literally two different feedings. One was the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves. The feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves was to a largely Jewish audience. Then there was a second one, the feeding of the 4,000 with seven loaves, which was to a largely Gentile audience. Now listen to this. Mark chapter 8 verse 16 tells us the following. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Who's this? It's Jesus' apostles. They're going, we're hungry. We don't have any bread. And Jesus was aware of this and he said to them, Why do you discuss that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? 
And then he goes into teaching mode. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? The apostles thought about it and they said, twelve. They said, right. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, seven? Right. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And I can guarantee when he said that, they were still going, no. (laughs) We don't. Please explain it to us, Lord. Listen, this is just awesome. The Jewish people were fed. And there were 12 basketfuls left over when the Jews were fed. How many apostles were there? Twelve. Jesus' portion, the portion of Jesus as he fed all those people was passed right along to the twelve apostles. There was more than enough Jesus to go around even after he left. But there's more than that. In the region of the Gentiles, when the four thousand were fed, seven basketfuls were left which means there's enough of Jesus to go around for all the Gentiles completely the number seven is the number of completion so Jesus could span could could fan out literally across the whole earth beginning with 12 Jewish men who would have more than their share of portion of Jesus to share the gospel and from those 12 then the feeding of the bread of life who is Jesus Christ would spread out across all the earth more than enough for all of the Gentiles. Jesus is our portion. And there's always more than enough Jesus to go around. Well, verse 43 ends. It says, The Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers. And they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all He had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one, watch this, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And this has become my favorite verse of the week all came to pass not one of his good promises failed nothing the Lord said he was going to do for Israel went unnoticed nothing was unfulfilled God is so good he is so faithful he always follows through now we've been reading through these inheritances of the 12 tribes and you know what the 12 tribes represent flakiness and, and fear and faithlessness and floundering and they don't get it and they keep messing up time and time again they don't receive their inheritance because they did a good job coming into the land they receive their inheritance because the Lord says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable once I say I'm doing it I'm doing it once I make a promise I keep it and it's not based on how well you follow me it's based on my faithfulness and my faithfulness alone Now it's awesome that Ezekiel 48 goes on later to say that all the tribes of Israel, all 13 tribes, Levi included, are going to receive an inheritance in the new promised land when Jesus comes again. But for you and for me, two verses and we're done tonight. Philippians 1.6. Let me just read this. Let the Lord speak this to you tonight. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's not because you get it all together and it's not because you shine like a righteous person. It's because the Lord will do it. If you put your faith in him, the Lord will do it. And Jude writes in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And Father, we praise you because you have said it and you will do it and all things will come to pass. And Lord, there are a few things we're waiting on. We are waiting on the glorious return of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting to be called up to be with you. We are waiting, Lord, to see the consolation of Israel in full form. We're waiting for that mighty kingdom over which Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. We're waiting, Father, for Satan ultimately to be put down and taken out. And we're waiting for the revelation of that new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem that you speak of so beautifully. 
But Father, we wait with a great hope and an absolute expectancy because we know when you say it, all things will come to pass. And so Lord, tonight, would you send us out encouraged and built up, knowing that you are completing a work in us and knowing that you are sufficient to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when you go to Israel... (laughs)